You know, it is just not lost on me how remarkable it is that a gathering of people here in Noonan, Georgia, 21st century, are standing around and singing in Hebrew, praise Yahweh. Uh, That's an amazing thing. And it's something for us to really be in awe of as we go through Exodus, that we are praising the ancient God of the Hebrews, the God of the ancient Hebrews, we could say, instead, and recognizing that he is not just uh, the God of an ancient Near Eastern people, of an ancient Near Eastern monotheistic people, but that he is the living God who has made us his children through the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I hope that just is not lost on you how incredible it is that we are here doing that and what a testimony that is to the reality of the gospel and the power of the Spirit in that it is not just the case that there is a gathering of people here in this building in Noonan, Georgia, but there are many gatherings of people this morning in Noonan, Georgia, and many gatherings of people in Georgia, and I could go on and on and on and throughout the world, who are singing in Hebrew, praise Yahweh. So we glorify the Lord for his salvation, that he has indeed brought salvation to the nations. He is calling a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we are a part of that story as we gather here today. So I pray that the weight of that and the glory of that is very much in our minds as we come to God's word. And specifically as we come to a book like Exodus, where we see so much about Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. So if you would... Go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 34, verses 10 to 28. That that will be our passage for today. Exodus 34, 10 to 28. God's presence, God's glory, His goodness, His name, His mercy, His justice. These are the themes that have occupied our attention over the last few weeks. These are the themes that we have been meditating on recently. And so that just leads me to one basic question, and it's this. How has God shown you his glory? We know specifically how God showed Moses his glory And we can't go back to that moment. We can try to vividly portray it. We can try to imagine it. But we can't go back to Mount Sinai and be there when God did what we have read recently. When God said what we audibly, what we have read recently. But what we do know is that the Lord manifests his glory through his word. And we have looked at that recently in such a grandeur as we've come to these major themes that I just mentioned. And so I ask you, how has God shown you his glory? Specifically, how are you feeling the weight of the glory of this great God? And it's just important for us to remember that that is precisely what is going on every time we open our Bibles. And, and, and that just blows our minds to think that every time we open our Bibles, we are like Moses on Mount Sinai as the glory of the Lord passes before him and God proclaims his name. That every time we open our Bibles and read these words, that is what's happening. God is showing us his glory. That's what's happening when we gather like this and we read and sing and pray and confess God's word together. That's what's happening during family worship. You know, we're going to have a workshop on family worship here soon. And I'll I'll just say it, uh, family worship can be frustrating. (laughs) It can be. Uh, And if you're not feeling that, come talk to me. Tell me what you're doing. But family worship uh, can be frustrating. It's not easy. It's not easy to gather It's not easy to calm. It's not easy to settle. It's not easy to convey and read long chunks and explain. 
It's not easy to dodge. Uh, I'm thirsty. I'm cold. I've got to go pee. It's not easy to dodge these sorts of things as you're a father and a mother. But it is encouraging for us to remember that every time we gather as families for family worship, God is showing us his glory. He's manifesting his greatness before us. In all the messiness, in all the unmet expectations, in all of the frustrations, God is nonetheless showing up and he's showing his glory. So it's just an encouragement not to give up when it's challenging, not to give up when it's difficult, when it feels like it's not impactful, that over time God will do his great work. And it is what God does every time we open our Bibles privately. So whether corporately or in our families or privately, God is showing his glory every time we open up this precious book. And it's an encouragement for us to stay in God's word. Last week we ended with Moses' appeal to God. Chapter 34, verse 9, and this is what he says. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Uh, After the Lord shows Moses his glory, that is what Moses says. Moses has just been powerfully confronted with the reality of God's mercy and forgiveness, but also with God's seriousness towards sin. Both of those things. Verse 9 shows that Moses clearly understands both of these. He understands both aspects of God's name. The verbiage that Moses uses in response to God shows that he gets it. He gets the mercy part and he gets the justice part. So what does he do? He confesses sin and he leans into mercy. And so after last week and after our gospel community group discussions this, uh, over the course of this week, uh, let me just ask, what about you? What about you? Do you understand both of these? Do you accentuate and seek to know more of God's mercy and his grace, his kindness to us, his compassion towards us, his slowness to anger, the abounding nature of his covenant keeping and faithfulness. But at the same time, do you understand and are you committed to and are you sober under the truth that God takes sin very, very seriously? Both of these truths are made abundantly clear at the cross where we see God putting his own son to death. This is not cosmic child abuse. This is the necessary atonement so that anyone can live, so that any of us can know Yahweh, the living, holy God. God puts his son on the cross as a payment for sin. That's how seriously God takes sin. That's how much God hates sin. And yet we see the fact that he did put his son on the cross to save sinners. And that is the great immensity of his mercy. Do you understand both of these? Do you feel the weight of both of these? Because both of these are needed for us to be flourishing Christians for us to seek holiness and sanctification, for us to lean in with assurance on God's mercy. And this is the reason, by the way, let me just say that our worship service is designed the way that it is. Notice in the worship service that we we magnify the Lord, we start with glorifying God, and we move from that to a confession of our own sin. And immediately after that, we move to assurance of God's pardon. We're not dwelling here on our sinfulness. We're moving to the cross of Christ, recognizing after confessing and turning away from sin that Jesus paid for it and that we've been made free from that condemnation. 
So that's what we see here with Moses. He understands it. He gets it. And so he says, forgive us, Lord, renew your relationship with your people. That is the gist of what he's saying in verse 9. And remember that Moses came up the mountain with new stone tablets. Keep that in mind. He knows God's intention. Uh, Moses is not uh, just sort of thick skull. he's, He's not just totally in the dark. He knows there's a reason why God has has had him get these tablets, carve out these tablets, cut out these tablets, and now bring them back up the mountain. He knows that everything God has revealed to him functions like a big invitation. An invitation to intercede for the people, to ask God to renew the covenant after the golden calf. And so today, beginning in verse 10, we get that renewal. We're finally at the the culmination of this golden calf incident. Really, what happens at the beginning of chapter 32 is now coming to its closure here at the end or middle of chapter 34. So the title for the sermon this morning is Renewal of the Covenant. That's what all of this intercession from Moses, that's what all that we've been reading has been moving towards, the renewal of the covenant. Following the golden calf incident, the people have mourned And they have obeyed the Lord in removing their ornaments. Moses has interceded for the people and God has told him that he will now go with Israel. He will give them his presence. So for reassurance, Moses has asked to see God's glory. And the Lord has done it. He has passed before Moses showing him his back, not his face, And proclaiming his goodness, his character, his gloriously gracious and holy name. It is a name that calls sinners back to God. And it is a name that calls sinners away from sin. Let me me say that again. God's name is a name that calls sinners back to God, but calls sinners away from sin. Sin. Let me say this to you. There is no returning to God without fleeing from sin. You don't run to God with sin coming out of your pockets. You don't run to God holding tightly your sin. To run to God is to let go of sin. It is to drop sin. It is to trample on sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. To run to God and away from sin. That's what God's name and what God's character invite us to do. Both together. They are inextricably linked. To run to God and away from sin. That's why this uh, anti-lordship theology, the notion that you can believe without repentance, is utterly foolish and utterly unbiblical. To run to God is always to run away from sin, to turn from sin to the living God, to repent and believe. As the message comes from Jesus at the very beginning of the Gospels, to repent and believe. There's no taking hold of God in faith that does not submit to him as Lord and in doing that flees from sin. The story of Pilgrim's Progress is the great illustration. He must leave the city of destruction as he sets out on the celestial city. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to read Exodus 34 verses 10 to 28. This is the word of God, and it is how he shows us his glory. Verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of Yahweh. 
for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Verse 18, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Aviv. For in the month of Aviv you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's help that we would, as we listen to preaching, as we listen to his word, that we would see his glory, that we would understand his name rightly, and that we would respond to his name and his glory obediently. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you reveal about yourself to us in the Bible. God, we thank you for the clarity that you give us and um, how you give us so many words, so many books, uh, where we can see through narrative vividly how uh, you manifest your name in the lives of your people. And we can hear you proclaim your attributes and we can hear your people proclaim them in your word through song and through teaching. Lord, we're instructed on uh, what we are to believe and what we are to do and what we are to avoid. God, so many riches. Lord, we praise you for what you have given us. And Lord, we confess our sin of not taking Uh, this into our lives as we should, Lord. We confess our sin of of neglecting your word and and not really believing in its power and not really believing in our need for it. We find our sufficiency in our own strength and in our circumstances and in other people, not in you. God, we ask for your forgiveness for this and we pray that you would help us, Lord, by your spirit. We thank you for the cross where all of our neglect and all of our disobedience has been paid for by your Son. We praise you, Lord, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that you sent him into the world, that by believing in him, we would not perish because of our sins. Lord, we praise you for that. We ask this morning, God, that your Spirit would guide this time of preaching and listening That you would make us all attentive in our minds and in the core of our being, in our hearts, Lord. That we would be supple in your hands. That we would be malleable as you work us 
out for your glory as you transform us into the likeness of your Son. God, thank you for this time together with one another, with brothers and sisters. And thank you for this time with you, God, as we commune with you individually in our own seats where we are. But Lord, uh, this day, on the Lord's day, here with your people as we commune with you together as the people of God. We thank you for this time and we pray that you would use it for our good and your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As God renews his covenant with Israel, we see him essentially saying three things to his people. So these are our three points for this morning. Uh, This is basically the message, what God is saying as he says these things to Moses and as they will be uh, delivered to the people when Moses comes back down the mountain. So three things, look forward, stay away, and come near. This is the content that we find here of covenant renewal. As God re-enters covenant, this is not another covenant. This is not a different covenant. This is a renewal of that covenant made at Sinai that was broken. God has renewed that covenant. And as he's doing that, he calls his people to these three things. Look forward, verses 10 27 and 28, stay away, verses 11 to 17, and then come near, verses 18 to 26. So let's go with look forward first. And for that, we're going to do verses 10 and 27 to 28. The middle portion of this section, so you're wondering, why are we going all the way from 10 to 27? Well, the middle portion of this entire passage gives the covenant stipulations. And you'll notice that from verse 11 to 26. Those are the covenantal stipulations. But this is bracketed by God's reassuring language as he renews his bond with his people. And so you get this uh, re-entering covenant language in verse 10 and verses 27 to 28. So look with me again as we read those verses. And he said, Behold... I am making a covenant. Excuse me. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And then we get down to verse 27 and 28. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. As Bible readers, we recognize that these are some of the most precious words we could read. And here they are. Verse 10, I am making a covenant. Those are... Indeed, maybe you passed over those words too quickly. Those are indeed some of the most precious words that we could read. That God, the God who created all reality, the God who is in himself intrinsically reality, everything else participates in that. The God who made angels, who made stars, humongous stars, The God who made all of us, every single speck, who is himself eternal and infinite and in need of absolutely nothing, entirely self-sufficient, that he would be in relationship with us. These are some of the most precious words we could read. I am making a covenant. And verse 27, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Now, a covenant, so uh, one of our kids, I love it, by the way, when you kids come up to me after the service and ask me questions, I love it, uh, about words that you didn't understand or uh, ideas that you didn't understand, whatever it is. And so one of our kids came up to me last week and asked me, what is a covenant? Which is a great question. It's a massive question as we're going through this portion of God's word. And there's a lot of ways you could define a covenant, but I would just define it as a binding agreement backed by promise. That's a biblical covenant. As we look at God making covenants with his people, it is a binding agreement backed by 
promise. And it is the way in which God relates to his people going all the way back to the beginning, to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis. It's a big word. It's a big idea. We see it reappearing throughout Genesis with Noah. We see it with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, we see it with Moses and the Israelites. We know that God entered into covenant with Israel as a nation at Sinai. We read about that in chapter 19, 20, and following. But this covenant was broken. It was broken by Israel in the construction and worship of the golden calf. And this breaking of the covenant was symbolized by Moses' breaking of the tablets. And so remember when we talked about Moses doing that, I said that some people might be tempted to misunderstand that passage and to say, well, okay, Moses come down the mountain and he gets mad. He's so frustrated and he throws down those tablets and so Moses is acting in some sort of sinful way. Well, we don't get any specific dialogue between Yahweh and Moses about uh, what he is to do when he goes down with regard to the tablets. But the way the text reads shows us that this is a symbolic act, that as those tablets are broken by Moses, it symbolizes, it pictures what has already happened as the people have broken God's law. They have replaced God with a metal image. They have transferred worship of the God who has saved them from Egypt, done many miracles, and preserved them, protected them, and provided for them. They've replaced him with a golden calf, with a metal image. But now we see here that we have new ones, new tablets, and they are mostly repeated words, but these are a new set of words that comes with these tablets, and they are to be recorded by Moses. The subject of the verb at the end of verse 28 is not entirely clear. You can notice that as you look down in terms of who writes on the tablets, but it appears to be Yahweh who writes on these tablets just as he had written on the first. And the reason for that, the reason that most have have said that this verb here, the subject of the verb here, though it's not clear, is Yahweh and not Moses, is what we read back in 34 verse 1, where it says that Yahweh is the one who will write on these tablets just as he did the first. So the Lord writes the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets, and Moses records all the words of this section that we read today in a book. And let me just say this, sometimes we wonder, you know, people will ask this question, where does the Bible come from? And by the way, there are so many good books out there that deal with this question, the reliability of the Bible, how we got the Bible, where the Bible came from, the transmission of the Bible, translation of the Bible, how the canons were formed, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the whole, all of that, interesting books. So look, if those are things you're wrestling with, go and read, take up and read. There's plenty of things. There are plenty of things that you can read. And look at, but here I just want to highlight the fact that we are seeing the beginnings of Scripture. And that's an interesting thing about the book of Exodus, is we are seeing the beginnings of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. We are seeing how these things came to be written down. God tells Moses, write these things down. Down, we've got the Ten Commandments as the core, and then we, of course, have the Book of the Covenant around that, and then all the deeds of the Lord, and then the history that preceded Moses. And and we're not given insight much into the different sources that Moses would have used, but what we know is that God inspires the Scriptures by His Holy Spirit and commands Moses to write down what He has said. Thus says the Lord. And so let me just ask this question about our view of Scripture Do we see all Scripture in this heightened way? And here's what I mean by that. This is a heightened moment, right? If you're going to sort of see Scripture come to us and come alive and recognize this is God's Word, this is one of those moments where it's abundantly clear. It's abundantly obvious. Here God tells Moses, write these words down. And we just read them. The words that Moses was to write down. But what we need to recognize is that every word in this book is from the Lord. 
We, we are to see every word of Scripture, not just these portions, but every word of the Bible with this heightened state of authority, with this heightened state of thus says the Lord. And that means that every time, once again, we open up our Bibles, we are encountering this heightened, glorious word. Just as before, Moses here spends 40 days and nights with Yahweh. This is a time of fasting in which God miraculously preserves Moses without food or water. So food, okay, we can understand. You can go and you can Google, you know, how long can you live without food? And, and the 40 days uh, is not impossible from a, from a just natural standpoint. But to go without water for 40 days is unnatural, is impossible on the human plane. But what we see here is God miraculously preserving Moses' life even as he goes 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. And so what is this pointing to? Well, it's pointing to Christ as the covenant mediator. Moses is the covenant mediator here, pointing to what we will see with Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Before Jesus sets out on his public ministry, before Jesus begins declaring The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. Before Jesus begins to proclaim and evidence in his life the new covenant, the coming of the new covenant. We will read in Matthew 4, 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Moses is here functioning as a type pointing to the future Christ who mediates the covenant by his own blood. But this renewal is no mere technicality. It comes with amazing reassurance of what God will do in the future. And so this is where I get the point, look forward. God is telling his people to look forward to his awesome deeds, to look forward to his marvels. We see that in verse 10. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth, Or in any nation. It is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Now the first thing that if you read this verse. And I don't know if this struck you. uh, As you read uh, in preparation for today. Hint, hint. uh, As you read earlier in the week these verses. uh, I don't know if it struck you. This word created. uh, it's, It's a little strange here. It's one of those words that you don't expect to see. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. It's not the verb you would expect. You would expect did or performed or something of that sort. But the word here is created. And these are, this combination of, of doing and creating brings the reader back to Genesis 1 and 2. It brings the reader back to creation itself. As God manifested his might, his glory, and his goodness at the creation of the universe, he's going to manifest those same things in faithfully carrying out the renewal of this covenant. How amazing is that after the golden calf? That that really should just blow us away. That even after The golden calf, God says this. And this makes us think about our own lives. We look back at our old self and say, even after that, God did this. And even after becoming Christians, stumbling into sin and folly and neglect and spiritual lethargy and apathy, that God, even after that, brings us back. Even after that, he's so merciful and gracious. This is the mindset of the people of God. Even after that, you do this. The gratitude that this brings to our hearts should be immense. Here we think of the marvels as God mentions these marvels We think of Joshua and all the stories associated with Joshua. We think of Elijah 
All the stories associated with Elijah. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is when Elijah calls down fire from heaven. I think if I could be in present at any moment in biblical history, that competes at least for the top one or two spots. To be present as the Lord of glory, the God of Israel shows his glory in contrast to the utter failure and non-existence of all. And God brings fire down from heaven and as I love the flames lick up the water you can't even soak it enough to prevent God's fire from coming down and consuming it what an incredible event but it's those sorts of things that I think are in view Joshua Elijah Samson and the way that God uses Samson the might that God gives Samson and the ultimate victory even after if I after his eyes have been put out. These are just some of the examples, and we see uh, the glory and the marvels of of God's destruction of the Assyrian army, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. There's so many other things that come to mind as we think about God's marvels. But, of course, we know that these marvels will culminate in the coming of the Son of God. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that for many reasons. But one of the reasons is because of what we read in Matthew chapter 9 verse 33. Here's Jesus healing. He's doing his work. The work that the Father gave him to do. The marvels we could say that the Father gave him to carry out. And it says in verse 33. And when the demon had been cast out. The mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, listen to what they say, never was anything like this seen in Israel. And you're kind of confused. You're like, well, are they not reading their Bible? Look at all the things that I just described, all the things that God did in Israel. Nothing like this. Nothing like the marvels of the Lord Jesus Christ. God will do these things. And he calls his people here to look forward. He is telling his people to look forward. This is the language. This is what we need to see. This is the language of forgiveness. The language of forgiveness. Turning their eyes away from their sin with the golden calf and towards the marvels that he will do on their behalf in the future. And this is so hopeful for us. This is so comforting for us as we think about God's forgiving grace. We know our old life. And what did God do at conversion? He took our faces and he turned our faces from the pit that we had dug for ourselves. He turned our, face, our faces from the, the, the feces-ridden puddle that we had wallowed around in and drank from. And he turned our faces to himself. That's what happened when God saved us. He turned us away from all the guilt and shame of our sin and turned us to his marvelous deeds, to his gracious character, to his magnificent salvation. This casts out guilt and it replaces it with gratitude as we consider what God has brought us from, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and what God has brought us to, Ephesians 2, 4 to 10. So that's the first thing that we get here is look forward. Secondly, we see stay away. So look with me in verses 11 to 17. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And we talked about that when we looked at the Ten Commandments. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. 
And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Here, God gets into the stipulations for his people. This is what he will require of them as this covenant is renewed. And when they disobey, God will punish them. As we read last week in Nehemiah, when they disobey, God will punish. He will bring judgment. And he will do that through the Assyrians. And he will do that through, uh, before that, the divided kingdom. He'll do that through the Babylonians. He will, he will do that through the Romans. God will punish them when they do not keep these stipulations. In verses 11 to 26, we get a sampling of God's covenantal stipulations for his people. And this is largely a repeat of previous material from chapter 23. So if you're concerned, oh my goodness, he's only starting verse 11 and he's going to go all the way up to verse 26. Uh, uh, this, is, this is largely material, not that any of you are thinking that, uh, but this is This is largely material that we've already covered. It's a a lot of repetition here. And and you would expect that because this is a renewal. This is a renewal of what's already been said. God said it once. And now God, in the renewal of the covenant, is going to say it again. So we get here a repeat. These next two points of much of chapter 23. But unlike chapter 23... Here, the stipulations begin with idolatry. Why? Uh, idolatry is not at the beginning of this in 23. Uh, ver- point three and two are switched. If you go and read the content of 23, you can go back and listen to those sermons. The, the, the message of the third point here comes before the message of the second. Why is it here that idolatry is at the beginning? Well, that's easy. Because of what has just happened. With the golden calf. This is what must first be said before anything else. Yes, the people are to look forward, but not in such a way that they forget their propensities and the danger that lies ahead. So let me me say that again. As Christians, we are to look forward. We're brought from the guilt and shame of our sin, and we look forward not constantly dwelling on the past and who we were and where we were in our sin. And yet we see here with the fronting of this message about idolatry that the Israelites will not be able to engage with these words without remembering what they did. They will look forward, but not in such a way that they forget their propensities and the danger That lies ahead. Is that the way you appropriate God's grace? Are you sober in your appropriation of God's grace? Do you remember what God saved you from? And do you remember that that old man is still there? That you still carry around that mortal body that Paul talks about in Romans 6. Those members can be given over to that old self. As Paul talks about in Ephesians, that old man, those propensities. Do we remember those propensities and guard against those propensities and see with clear vision, with the light of God's word, as his spirit is working in us, all the pits that we could fall in to bring us back there to the old way. We look forward. But we never forget. What we have here is one big warning against assimilation. And more specifically, assimilating to the idolatrous practices of the Canaanites. That's what's in view here. God will bring them into the land and drive out their enemies. As those who are in covenant with the true God, they are not to enter into covenants With these worshipers of false gods. They're not to get into the land and get cozy with the people. They're not to enter into Canaan and get cozy with their pagan neighbors. Instead of worshiping their false gods, they are to tear down their altars and sacred objects. They are not to intermarry, lest they be caught up in spiritual adultery 
whoring after and sacrificing to their gods. And if you've wondered, and this was a quote I heard a long time ago, that Oprah Winfrey found it appalling that God is a jealous God and just how unbecoming of a deity worthy of worship that would be and how appalling. But what we understand as we read through this is that speaking of God's jealousy is a way of capturing the atrocious nature of idolatry. To worship other gods besides Yahweh is to be like a spouse who cheats on his or her spouse. It is to commit adultery. Idolatry and adultery here being linked together. And so God is jealous in the sense that he is a faithful husband to his bride. And he cares about the union that he has entered into with his bride. As any earthly husband ought to be. And so we see here that God says they are not to intermarry lest they fall into this whoring after the gods of the people. Finally, verse 17, they are not to step back into the error of Sinai. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Notice that's the last thing that's said on this topic, which brings them right back to what they just did. Once again, looking forward, but not forgetting. So what's the big message here? Stay away. Stay away from idols. So as we take a step back, what are we to make of this for our own lives? Well, the message is essentially the same for us. The message is essentially the same. That we are to stay away from idols. That we are to worship God alone that we not chase the idols of the people around us. Now, in terms of the covenants and the agreements and all of that, it's a different, it's a unique situation. God is displacing, he is destroying the wicked people of the land and he is moving the Israelites into that land and they are not to in any way, shape, or form make these binding agreements with the people of the land. That's a a unique instance there in history. That's not a transferable thing. We make no binding agreements. We make no contracts or anything of that sort with people today. That's, That's not what you should take away from this. The idea is this. We don't chase the idols of the people around us. Let me give you a few verses here that I think are really helpful for centering us as Christians on this truth. So here's one from John 17, verses 15 to 16. This is Jesus praying to the Father for his people. And this is what he says. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Let me say this. Unbelievers that we know in our lives, whether they're in our families or neighborhoods or wherever, they are of the world. They are of the world, categorically, essentially, intrinsically. They are of the world. We are not. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James goes so far as to say that if you want to put two ingredients here in what it looks like to be a Christian, it is the compassionate care for those in need, and it is remaining unstained from the filth of the world. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then we get this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 17, Paul quotes Isaiah 52:11 as saying this, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And then he writes this quoting that Old Testament verse with respect to Israel, he then transfers this idea to the church in chapter 7 verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, the promises of the gospel, the promises of what Christ has given us, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
That's what it looks like for us to appropriate verses 11 to 17 as Christians living today. And here's the thing. Christians for centuries have tried to to sort of over-micromanage this. Right? And so that's where you get all kinds of, you know, fundamentalism and legalism and, you know, don't dance, don't chew, don't whatever else, you know, you got all these little, little things, you know, that you don't do. And we recognize, of course, that there are many foolish things that we are to avoid. And we certainly could make a list, right? We certainly could make a list of more or less wise practices and we could have subcategories and then, you know, a third level of categories and we could nuance all those categories and so forth. You could micromanage the morality down to every person's choices. And you can do that into infinity. That's not the way the Lord intended for us to operate. What we understand here is that God puts us before his word, he puts us with his people, and he gives us the spirit. And he gives us a conscience, and the spirit works in our conscience. And we are in obedience to the word of God from, with counsel from God's people to understand uh, what we ought to eat and what we ought to drink and, and how much we ought to eat and how much we ought to drink and what we should and should not watch and what we should and should not touch and, and the extent to which that is a problem. These are things that we work out in community with God's people under the authority of his word. But the essential message is clear. We are not of the world. We are not worshipers of their gods. We worship the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, we get this message come near as we close this morning. So look with me at verses 18 to 26. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Aviv. For in the month of Aviv you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land. When you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, as I said before, once again, this is largely a repeat of material from chapter 23. And so we went through these things in detail when we looked at those verses in chapter 23, specifically verses 10 to 19. But it also echoes material from chapters 12 and 13. So the material we find here comes from chapter 12 and 13. It comes from chapter 23. And we need to notice this, that God doesn't just put before his people what they are to avoid, He doesn't just highlight the bad. And as I said before, when I was talking about that sort of legalistic mindset, it tends to focus so much on the bad to be avoided. Don't taste, don't touch, don't smell. You know, stay away, stay away, stay away. And that's really the message. That is the message, the whole thing. Just stay away from that and you're good. Very much focused on the bad. But what we notice here is that God calls his people to the good And in fact, it is in diligent keeping the good, diligently keeping the good, that we naturally stay away from the bad. Let me say it to us this way. This is really important that we get this. A life that is deeply committed to true worship of God will have little tolerance or time for the ways of the world because we're immersed. We're preoccupied. Neglect and idleness are gateways to sin. It's not so much stay away from that and stay away from that and stay away from that. It's stay close to him. Because when you stay close to him, when you stay up in his face 
and down in his word. Sin stinks. It's just nasty. It's just folly. It's just anxiety-producing garbage. You don't want it at all. You hate the thought because you're so focused on the good. The bad has to be eclipsed with the good. When we neglect to do what God commands us to do, when we neglect the things that God calls us to, when we are idle with our time, we are opening the door wide to sin. Opening the door wide to so much bad. So here... God calls his people to lose themselves and their calendars in him. And for Israel as a nation, that doing good centered on coming before the Lord in worship. And I think this also anticipates the building of the tabernacle as we think about the people coming before God regularly at the tabernacle. So to quickly go through this, we see a number of categories. I'm going to go through this really quickly because we've already covered it. But first, there is Exodus commemoration, Exodus remembrance. And so we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread connected to the Passover. And we have the redemption of the firstborn. (coughs) These are continually reminding the people of the Exodus events. Second, there is the weekly covenant sign, the Sabbath. A regular commitment of the Israelites trusting in the Lord and identifying with him in creation. This is a perpetual observance. Every week they're confronted with who they are in the Lord. Third, the other annual feast, the weeks and in-gathering, celebrate God's provision and remind the people that everything they have is from him and to him. And in verse 24, God promises that he will protect the land while the people are gone to appear before him. At his sanctuary. Fourthly, right worship. In all their sacrifices, they are to follow God's instructions and not the practices of the pagans around them. Whether it involves leaven, leftovers, the quality of the offering, or the selection of the sacrificial animal, in all of these things, they are to follow the Lord's word and not the ways of others, not the ways of those around them. So immersed in the worship of Yahweh that there's just little tolerance or time for anything else. Let me just ask you that this morning. How does that land on you? Got a lot of free time? Maybe got a lot of work time. Maybe busy, 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 busy. Maybe busy, busy body. Maybe idle Immerse yourself in the things of God and you will see so many, we will see so many of the sins that ensnare us begin to unclip and fall away. As we close this morning, all of this emphasizes remembrance. Notice that the Israelites are going to be constantly reminded of what the Lord did. And I just want to tell you that this this is one of the reasons that God has ordained us to gather On the Lord's Day. It's one of the reasons we have the Lord's Day. is because we gather for worship. And we are reminded in order that we might be committed to the good. And flee from the bad. Hebrews 10.25. Says that we are not to neglect to meet together. As is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And what do we read of the Lord's Supper? In remembrance of me. Jesus says. Do this. Partake of this. In remembrance of me. We are easily forgetful. And as God's people, we constantly, daily, hour by hour, Daniel three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening, praying to the Lord. Constantly being reminded, even in our prayers, of God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's covenant, God's rescue. Those things just flushing over our minds and we're so devoted to his praises that there's just not room in our lives for the wicked deeds of the flesh. This is the remembrance that the Lord calls his people to. They are to stay away and they are to come near to him. 
And such is the nature of our lives as we pass through on this pilgrim way. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for time together in your word, for time to study it, to seek to understand it. We're grateful for what your spirit does with it in our hearts. Lord, sanctify us, we pray. Forgive us for our sins and help us, Lord, to make the best use of our time while we have breath. For life is fast and it is fleeting. Vapor, mist, fading flower, breath. Lord, you've already told us what it's like. And we experience it in our own lives. Lord, would we take hold of this breath and squeeze it out for your glory. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.